Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Alan's going to open our class with prayer this morning. Dear Father, thank you very much for the Sabbath. We, we so much appreciate a day to get away and just forget about everything and focus on you. We, we so much appreciate that gift. Thank you for the gift of this class with Tim and teaching us all about you, basically. We really so much appreciate that gift also. Bless us today individually and as a group of those that aren't with us. We ask you to be with them. Thank you so much again for your love. Amen. And we are doing lesson number four in our quarterly Agents of Hope, God's Great Missionaries. And the title this week is The Son of God Among Us. And if someone read the second paragraph there in the Sabbath lesson that begins, A Man Who? A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something else. And that's from C.S. Lewis. Either either Jesus was the Son of God, or a madman or something else. And I just want to read to you briefly various uh, portions of Scripture that I've pulled um, from the book of John, where Jesus is speaking, and, and after I, I read these, just, just think about the context, and I want you to be thinking, imagine today, somebody you know in our local church community here, Jesus was a carpenter, so imagine a carpenter here from our community, uh, 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 maybe a brick mason, a plumber, somebody from our community that we worship with for the last 30 years, they were born here and grew up with us, stands up and, and begins to say these things that you hear uh, from, from uh, the book of John. This is, uh, the first one is John uh, 6, uh, starting verse 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise, I will raise him up in the last day. In John eight twenty three, Jesus continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you, will, you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. In verse 58 of John 8, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. John 11:25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Remember, think about somebody that you've gone to church with, a plumber, a carpenter, somebody you've, you've known since they were born and grew up around you, standing up in church and saying these things. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then what he said to Philip, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me doing his work. Believe what I say, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, if you heard these words coming from somebody, 
What would you think? He was a poached egg. Do you s- <laughs> Pardon? He was a poached egg. A poached egg. No, okay. They said not. he had a devil. Right. No, that's not. But he said to. I'm asking if you saw heard this uh, somebody in the church here today saying this. Well, but they, he said to the disciples of John, "Tell them what you have seen, mm-hmm. but what they saw him do, rather than his flames, that they had a different." Okay, so what he said was also verified by the evidences of how he lived his life. Exactly. Okay. And that's miracles. that's important. But what conclusion would we be forced to draw about Jesus? If we deny that he's the son of God, after hearing all the things he said, if we deny that he's the son of God, then what's left to us? Very bad guy for having claimed that. He's a liar. Yeah, do you see the dilemma? Do you see a dilemma of, of people who would suggest that Jesus was a prophet? He was a prophet inspired by God, but he wasn't the son of God. Do you see a, a, a problem with that? You know, there's a whole group of people who say that. Islam, Muslims say that Jesus was a prophet. But they deny he's the son of God. But look what he said. Now, you see, the, what kind of a prophet would actually say those things? It would be a, a false prophet, wouldn't it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it's really an inconsistency. And look at the level of deceit that the mind can go through to avoid the truth. It's very interesting. I thought it fell. All right, somebody read the last paragraph for us there. As Adventist. We work from the starting point that the Bible is is the Word of God. And that what it says about Jesus is truth, period. We do not have the time to waste on Mm -hmm. nonsensual, high critical speculation about whether Jesus did the things the Bible said that he did. After all, if we cannot believe the Bible, what can we believe? What do you think about that mindset? We start with the starting point that the Bible is the Word of God and what it says is true, period. We don't have time to waste on nonsense asking questions. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Do you think that's a healthy mindset? No. Well, I think that... We need to ask. If they would start with uh, establishing that the Bible is inspired, you know, that you have to start someplace. And it seems to me if you've established, and there are good points to indicate that the Bible is inspired of God. Now, if we've taken that step, then we could say the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Yes, yeah, so so the point of the lesson, you don't agree with? That we no, are not just jumping right into that we Adventists believe that. So do you ever meet people who question whether the Bible is inspired or not? Yes. So should we, I do, i got to tell you, I've come people in my office and say, you know, how do you know the Bible can be trusted? How do you know the Bible's inspired? Well, because we're Adventists and we don't even ask questions like that. We just start with the fact that the Bible's inspired. We don't have time for silly questions like that. Is that what you say? Well, what kind of a witness would you have if you used that attitude? You see? No, we, I think it's very legitimate. So, it's appropriate and healthy for us to step back and say, can we trust the Bible? I think the Bible, if you actually have a genuinely open mind searching for truth, demonstrates its trustworthiness. It can be trusted. And so there's nothing to be afraid in asking the question. In fact, an attitude like this says we're scared to ask that question. We're not sure what we might discover if we were to ask a question like that, so we don't even ask that question. But we don't have to be afraid. The, the question will be answered very powerfully that the Bible is completely trustworthy and inspired by God. I can give a lot of answers how the Lord answered my prayer. That's proof enough. 
Yeah, and, and you know, we're not going to do the whole Bible can be trusted discussion today, but I just wanted to point out that that mentality of uh, just assuming without allowing questions to be explored isn't really a, the way God invites us to work. He invites us to reason together, to investigate, to, to ask the questions, to search for the answers with him. The whole reason the Bible is written, I mean, is God demanding that we explore it and expecting us to question it and fed it out for ourselves. In Sunday's lesson, the, and right in the right in the near top there in the dark, it says, "If someone were to ask you who was Jesus, what would you say and why?" And then it goes on to offer us an answer. And if somebody would read that paragraph right immediately below that, starting your answer, your answer, whatever it contained, should have dealt with the fact that Jesus was the divine Son of God, and that He died for our sins and rose again. That He did great things while He was here is fine. That he preached powerful sermons is fine. That he revealed to us the character of God is fine. But none of these things, in the end, really matter if Jesus did not come and die as the capital substitute for us, thus giving each of us the promise of eternal life, if we would only claim it for ourselves. So, class, what do you think about that paragraph? Uh, the Bible says why he came. He came to reveal the Father. That's the main point. Fine. So, how do you hear that paragraph? What do you hear the message of the paragraph? Is there any truth in the paragraph? Yes, yeah. yes, there is. Truth. Is it expressed in ways that make the gospel very, very clear? It's too narrow. Well, then, how can we express it in ways that make it more clear? It says. If we but claim it for ourselves, claim, that, claim what for ourselves? And they have one purpose to live to His honor and glory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you notice it said? Um, well, first off, what do you think about the phrase "died for our sins"? Died for our sins. Good evangelical Reformation theology. What, what do you think it means? Good Adventist theology. Uh, for about ninety percent. Yeah, died for our sins. Well, if you took it to mean died because of our sins, you know, because now we're separated, we're hiding, we don't understand, we don't trust, that would be a good explanation. Died because of our bad acts? Because, because of our acts of sin? Moved away right. from God. We misunderstood God. We don't see God. When, when, when did we do that? In the garden. Okay, so in this room, when did we do that? Really? Which one of us decided that we were going to move away from a face-to-face, perfect, holy, sinless relationship with God into sin? Which which one of us? When did we decide that in this room? You don't have to decide it. It's something that you're born away from God. Hmm. You're born egocentric. Yes, that's my point. We haven't decided to move away from God, have we? No. We were born away from God. We haven't decided to come home. Oh, that's a different question, isn't it? Yes, have we decided to come home? Have we decided to be reconciled? Have we decided to take his invitation of restoration and regeneration? Yeah, that's a different question, isn't it? But that goes back to this question of what do we think it means he died for our sins? Does it mean he died for our bad acts? You know, I did a lot of bad things. I stole a cookie when I was five. I I stuck my tongue out in second grade and made fun of a child. I I did a lot of bad things. Did he die for all those bad things? My mom's shaking her head. Yes, he did. (laughs) 
died to bring us back into unity with the Father. Mm. To do away with that mm. separation. Awareness. I think mm. the whole reason he died. Oh, Go ahead, Ashley. I think the whole reason he died was the reason that they downplayed earlier, where it says he revealed the character to us, and they're saying they're downplaying that. I think they should be placing the emphasis on that rather than placing the emphasis on he died for our sins and everything, you know? Well, how, how about if we phrased it like this? I, I agree with you. We're going to come to that point in a second. How about if, if we were to phrase it instead of died for our sins, he died, as, as you said, because of sin? See, sinfulness is the difference between sinfulness and acts of sin. Or you see those synonymous. Sins are the same thing as sinfulness. Or are sins the consequence of sinfulness? Say that again. What? Acts of sin is a symptom of sin. So it's kind of like... Acts of sin. I like it. Acts of, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. He's saying the acts are the symptoms of the condition of the heart. And so when we, when, oftentimes when we hear the word sins, he died for our sins, we think acts. I think he died because of the condition of sinfulness. And so he died because of sin or sinfulness. He died to cure sin as a solution to the sin problem, as a remedy to sinfulness, to fix the sin problem. I think he did die because of sin, but as a solution, as a remedy to fix, to cure, to heal, to restore, to regenerate, to to turn back, to undo, to counteract, all those types of things would be true. But um, that's different than dying for the acts themselves, isn't it? Yeah. Let's push on with this thought. The uh, quarterly talks about the idea of revealing the truth about God, that it really doesn't, in fact, it quotes, it really doesn't matter that he died to reveal the truth about God if he didn't die as our substitute. You see, what the, what the quarterly has done is they have dissected out two things to make us go, and this is one of, let me tell you one of the strategies of the devil. One of the strategies of the devil is he gets us to take two positions that are not quite right and argue them against each other. Uh, classic example the wicked will burn forever in the fires of hell being tormented for all eternity and the fires burn forever tormenting them and then a classic Adventist response is no, the fires only burn as long as they deserve and then they go out right? which is merciful Uh, and neither one of those are really the, the accurate truth but the burning is the same because the fires are the fires of the glory of God's presence, Isaiah 33, 14, 15. We don't have time to go through all that again. Multiple texts. It's on the blog if you'd like to read it on, on our website. But text after text after text will show you that the fires are the fires that Lucifer used to walk among the, the fires of, of God's presence, the fires that, the, that uh, Elijah rode that fiery chariot into heaven. The fires never go out. The fires burn forever. And we, the righteous, live in the fire of God's life-giving glory and are transformed by it. And so we argue the position, fires go out, fires burn forever torturing. Neither one is exactly right, and we argue against each other. You see this all types of doctrines uh, through Christianity. And so one of the ones we have going on in our church is, Christ died as our substitute, Christ died to reveal the truth. And we argue against each other. Which one is it? Both. It's both. It's both. It's not one or the other. And so you could turn this logic on its head and you could say, because it's true, if Christ did not die as our substitute, we need to talk about how and why and what that means. But if he didn't die as our substitute, revealing the truth alone is insufficient for us. However, 
If he died as our substitute and didn't reveal the truth about God, does that do us any good? No. No. We're equally in deep trouble because the truth about God had to be revealed in order to win us to trust. But once we're one to trust, what do we need? A remedy and a cure. What's the remedy? His healing love. His healing love, okay. Where? Understood? God is loving and that heals? Or his healing love, his character, his law of love, the principle of life being regenerated, rewritten into the character. You see, understanding God as love isn't sufficient to fix the problem. The principle of God's life-giving presence, his law of love, his character had to be restored into the species, didn't it? It's the operating system that we operate by. And so we have Christ doing both. He, he became the substitute for who? Primarily. Adam. Adam. And each one of us are? Heirs. Heirs of Adam. Extensions of Adam. So if he reverses the things that Adam did, then that becomes effective for the whole race. Because we're all extensions of Adam. Yes? So it, it wouldn't be correct to say that he's a substitute for our sins. But I, like, it's, no, he's not a substitute for our acts of sin. It's for Adam. Well, there's two, two, two things. One, what was, Adam's, what was the purpose of Adam's creation? Reveal the government of God. Yeah, Adam was created in the context of a war already raging in heaven. Lucifer had already started rebellion. It already started lying. It already started misrepresenting. Angelic hosts were confused. Things were going back and forth. A third of the angels were moving away from God. God certainly declares the truth, but he began to give evidences. And Christ begins to create, and he creates a new species in God's image and gave them two capacities that the angelic host didn't have. One, the power of procreation. Two beings can come together in the unity of love, giving of themselves and bring forth new life in their image. Power of procreation. And what would have happened in, in this planet if Adam and Eve would have had children in a world without sin, as God instructed them to? Would they have had those kids to abuse, to lord over, to dominate, to enslave, to be demand worship from? Or would they have been giving of themselves constantly for their kids? And thus the universe would have said, oh, I get it, God didn't create us to wait on him, and he's not abusing us. He's giving of himself constantly for our good. He would, would have revealed the truth about God, number one. Number two, God gave Adam and Eve dominion, governance, authority, the ability to govern all forces of nature on this planet, and all lower life forms were under the governance of Adam and Eve. And thus all the animals were in obedience to Adam and Eve, and there was no hostility, no threat, no survival of the fittest, no, no rebellion of animals attacking man. They ought all come to him. They were, they were obedient to him until his rebellion. And so these things were revealing. And then you see other truths, like when Lucifer alleged, well, God didn't let me to go into certain councils that Christ got to go into. That's not right. That's not fair. Well, Adam and Eve, when they were planning various things, why didn't they invite the elephant or the, the lion or the tiger or, or, or these into the councils of Adam and Eve? Because they were selfish and egotistical and wouldn't share? Or because those animals, those lower life forms, had nothing to offer to the discussion? So even as brilliant as Lucifer was, do you think he really had something to offer to a dialogue between the Godhead? No. No, he didn't have anything to offer, so he was kept out, not because God was selfish and egotistical, but he couldn't even probably comprehend the conversation they were having, just as the animals couldn't comprehend the conversation between Adam and Eve, and he had nothing to offer. 
And so it reveals. All these things are revealed. It's not just declared. And this is the beauty of God. He reveals in, by giving evidences. This is one of the things he's wanting us to learn how to think through what the meaning of what's revealed rather than just believing what's declared. And one of the things I see in Christianity that gets us in great trouble is we take the declared statements of the Bible. And we build theology off the declared statements and, re- and ignore the evidences of what actually happened. You know, like the statements in the Old Testament where God thunders in loud voice and threatens. And we'd build those and say, see, God will do these horrible things to you. But we ignore what actually happened after those threats were given where God simply pulled back. In other words, God's hand of protection was withdrawn rather than God actually acting aggressively. We ignore the evidence. And so our challenge is to start looking through to see the evidences of what actually happened. How about when the Bible says God is love? Why do we believe that's true? Because the Bible said it? Or because there's evidences revealed primarily in the life of Christ demonstrating by action and deed that God, in fact, is love. And for those vast number who have never heard of Christ, it is nature, isn't it? And nature, too, absolutely. In fact, we're going to come back to that, that law of love. So, substitute to reveal the truth. Adam failed in his creation. He was to reveal the truth. He failed. He, he, he acted self-centeredly. And as soon as he sinned, what did he say? Uh, he ran and hid because he was afraid. When God came, he said to God, it wasn't me. It was the woman. Now the universe looks in and goes, whoa, I wonder if God is like Adam, willing to sacrifice others to protect himself. You see, the truth about God is now being marred rather than revealed in Adam because of Adam's sin. So Christ has to come to finish the work Adam failed to do. And you read in John 17, Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known. I have revealed you. So absolutely, part of the work, we couldn't be saved without the revelation of truth because without the revelation of truth about God, we wouldn't trust him. But if you were sick and dying and there was a, a person who told you they had a remedy to cure you, and that person was Osama bin Laden, and you were an American citizen, would you take anything Osama was offering you? No, because you don't trust him. Even if he actually has a real remedy, you still wouldn't take it, would you? Would you even get near him? Hey, we're going to take you to see Osama bin Laden tonight. Are you going, if you have a choice? No, you're not going. You don't want to get near him, because you don't trust him. So the truth is essential, because it wins us to trust. But if you trust your dad, who's a really loving doctor, and you're sick, but your dad doesn't have any treatment, no remedy. Does your trust get you well? No. You see, we needed both. We needed the restoration of trust, but we also needed a remedy. And what is that remedy? Somebody said God's love. We read Romans 5, 5. He pours his love into our hearts. God is love. We become partakers of the divine nature. How did God's love get back into this species known as human? Through Christ. Do you understand Christ was the medium, the mechanism, the avenue, the conduit through which God put his love back into this creation? How did he do it? Well, he recreates, doesn't he? When a person comes in surrender to God, he creates and he's born again. Do you remember the metaphor about Christ being the ladder? And the bridge and the vine and the connecting link. So what you're saying is a secondary consequence after the bridge, the ladder, the connecting link has been made. The question is, how did Christ open the avenue through which that love could be put in our hearts? How did it happen? What happened? By becoming a human being and living a perfect life. Okay, but I think we all would agree Christ, Son of God, became human. He lived a perfect life. How does that help us? By beholding 
Did Christ, um, well, let me put it this way. Why was it necessary he was born as a baby rather than, do you remember, he came and appeared as a man to Abraham, did he not? So here we are, he's, he's, he's appearing as a man to Abraham. Why didn't he just appear at age 30? Age 30, when he started his public ministry, do his three and a half year public ministry, just poof, on the scene, get crucified and die. Why would that not have been sufficient to fix the problem? Yes. His human character was developed. Oh, did you hear what she said? He had to develop a character through suffering. Do you all believe that Christ had to develop a character? Does the Bible say that? He grew in wisdom and stature and favor in God and man. Hebrews 5.8 says that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. In other words, he wasn't the source of salvation until he was made perfect. Then he became the source of salvation for all who believe, it says, Hebrews 5.8. Yes? He was bringing humanity back to God before he ever came and he was born. That's true. He was working to enlighten the whole time, but could they have been brought back to God without his actual appearance on earth, developing perfect character, and defeating Satan and his forces on earth as a human being? I don't think it would have been completed, but it was in process already before they ever saw a human right. Christ. It was in process, but could it have been accomplished without it? In other words, you can knead the dough to make bread, but if you never put it in the oven and bake it, do you actually get bread? But I think I mean, you have to. Enoch was walked with God, Job was declared perfect, and so even before anyone saw God in human form, there was perfection, maturity of other characters. Because of? God's revelation that he'd given before. Because of Christ's completed work. Christ was the Lamb of God slain from? The foundation. Foundation of the world. In other words, the only reason Enoch walked with God was because of Christ's victory at the cross, not because of revelation prior to the victory of the cross. Now, how do we understand that? The difficulty we have in understanding this has to do with a finite mind, which lives in linear time, trying to understand an infinite God who lives outside of time. But I will say it this way. If Christ never accomplished what he accomplished anywhere in time, it doesn't exist anywhere in time. If he never did it, it doesn't exist past, present, or future. But once he did it, the God who lives outside of time, it, he can apply it anywhere in time. Relativity. Once he accomplished it, it exists everywhere because God is not limited to time or space. But if he never accomplished it anywhere, it doesn't exist anywhere. Does that make sense? It doesn't? If Christ never accomplished it anywhere, it doesn't exist, does it? Well, no, but what doesn't make sense to me is, how did God reveal his love to people before Christ came? And you said that from the he was slain from the foundation of the world. Well, I don't understand that. I'm sorry. I just don't. I mean, for 4,000 years before Christ came, how did God reveal his love to the people? Once Jesus came, yes, I can see it. But before then, how did he do it? How did Enoch walk perfectly with God? How was Job a perfect man before Christ came? If Christ was the one that showed us perfection and showed us the character of God, what did these people do before he came? Yeah, and that's a, that's a secondary question, the revelation aspect. He revealed it through the old types and symbols. So there were a lot of evidences still around for people. Adam himself lived all the way up until the generation, uh, practically to the generation that died. There were, in other words, there are people who died in the flood who had talked to Adam <clears throat> themselves. Okay? Um, 
if the angels were guarding the, ark, the uh, entrance to the garden and their angelic host, and sinful man can't look on the glory of the angelic host. And the Who says that? It's an assumption. Really? Adam looked on the face of God in the garden after that was he had sinned. After he had sinned. Yeah. God came to him. Adam, where are do you? Re- do you remember? Because I was afraid. I was naked. Do you remember uh, Moses, God put in the cleft of the rock and passed before him? Okay. And he came down radiating his glory. And not just Moses, if you read, there was the 70 elders who also saw God. Tim, God revealed himself through human beings. But see, we've jumped from step two back to step one. Step one is revelation of truth, the wind to trust. We were on step two, which is procuring a remedy that heals. And Wendell's question had to do, how does the remedy get applied to somebody prior to Christ's coming? And the implication was that all that was necessary was revelation of truth because truth was revealed prior to Christ's coming and people were healed. I'm suggesting that they were healed by the revelation of truth and then as they opened the heart, the remedy which Christ achieved was still applied to their hearts because God can apply it anywhere in time because he doesn't live in time once Christ achieved it. But if Christ never achieved it, he couldn't apply it anywhere. And does the scripture also say that God rested from all of his work at the end of creation? See, and the issue has to do with, again, our finite minds trying to understand a, a finite mind and a linear being, a being who lives in linear existence, trying to understand a God who is infinite and lives outside of time. So with God, the past, present, and the future are all alike extended. You've heard that statement, right? For God, there is no difference between past, present, and future. Now, that's hard for our minds to understand, but it's true. And so once Christ accomplished what he accomplished on earth, God is in now possession of a remedy that heals, and he applies it to anywhere in time. But if Christ never came, it doesn't exist anywhere. So it's for our benefit. Yes, and so the people in, before the cross were healed in the same way the people after the cross trust in God, reception of the victory of Christ, which we were about to get to, uh, the, the perfect character of Christ, which he achieved, is taken from the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and reproduced in us. Thus, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I will write my law on your hearts and minds. We will have the stony heart removed, the heart of flesh put in. We have the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. will be renewed in the inner man. We get the mind of Christ. Okay, We get what he has achieved as we trust God. Well, so did Enoch. He trusted God, and he, achieved, and he received what Christ achieved. The victory is Christ. It's not Enoch's. And if Enoch could be saved without the victory of Christ, then Christ's victory and death was really unnecessary. It was superfluous. There was another way. Does anyone want to suggest there was another way besides Christ? Let's back up one step before creation of man. Yes. There was sin that had happened yes. before that. Yes, yes. And Lucifer had separated himself from God. Yes. Prior to whatever the unpardonable sin it was that Lucifer performed, it was possible for Lucifer to be brought back into the fold That's right. of the heavenly host with redemption. And then that did not require the death of a human for him to be Redeemed. That's correct. Okay. And so, just taking that as a model, it seems that 
for the completion of humankind, Christ's death and resurrection and his perfect life and, and character were necessary, otherwise God wouldn't have done it, but it's not necessary in the sense of a requirement of God that, he, that it had to be done and then in some way applied to a human. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So of Ages 761, Ellen White says that man was in a different position than that of, of Lucifer. Lucifer sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. But man was deceived by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. Um, there was hope for him in the revelation of God's character of love. Then she goes on to say, the very next paragraph, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came as man and developed a perfect character. These he offers to man as a free gift to all who will receive them. They have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, but through the working of the Holy Spirit, they have the imbuing of the Holy Spirit. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine. Thus, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in God. And so we have this issue revealed. One, how was it that Lucifer could be restored without the death of Christ, but mankind couldn't? There was nothing more to reveal. He, he, he had all of God's glory and character revealed to him already. That's right. So it was, uh, it was, number one, he didn't have to be won back to trust with further revelation of truth. And two, evidently, he had a capacity within himself to exercise a decision-making capacity to remedy his own warped mind to a certain point. And then once it went beyond that point, he couldn't remedy himself. If you remember the discussions that went like this, Lucifer asked for an audience with Christ. He asked to be brought back. Tears were shed on both sides. Christ said, you can't come back. Not because I'm unwilling to forgive, but because you have so persisted that you are beyond changing now. Your character is warped into the character of a rebel, and you can't be healed. That was the unpardonable sin. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is not dependent upon the death of Christ. So the death of Christ was necessary to actually cure, heal, and fix the sin problem. Now, after man sinned, by the way, before Adam sinned, Adam had the capacity, and Eve both, had the capacity... to actually develop perfect character in their own right, to be confronted with temptation, and to choose in their own strength to say no. They could have resisted Satan in their own strength. That's why the tree was there. That's why the tree was there. And if they would have said no, they would have developed their own perfect character. Do you think it was their own strength or the strength they had from communing with God on a daily basis? They were created innately with the capacity, obviously from God because he's the creator and everything they had, their ability to see, their ability to taste, their ability to walk, all those things came from God. So ultimately, yes, it came from God, but he set them free in self-governance that in their own self-governance they had the ability to resist the devil and to say no and develop perfect character. In other words, they were free to weigh the issues out and choose God over Satan and in so doing would have developed their own character. This developing of character that Jesus gives to us will continue even into eternity? Well, once, once Adam sinned, though, he no longer had the capacity to free himself. Right. But, but once we accept his character, it uh, does not mean we'll reach perfection in this life. Well, it depends again. Perfection in the Bible is actually maturity. Right. Okay, and we, when we hear the term perfection, we hear not making any type of mistakes. We don't dribble soup on our chin. We don't uh, trip and fall as we walk into a room. I mean, we hear perfection in those terms. Uh, the Bible term of perfection is maturity of love. 
that we love others more than ourselves. And Revelation actually says that those who are ready to meet Christ when he comes, Revelation chapter 12, are the, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They've been won over from self-centered survival of the fittest, willing to exploit others and put others down in order to save self, that they're willing to give their lives in love for others. And we see this exampled in two people prior to translation to heaven. Moses, willing to give his life for the children of Israel at Sinai. Paul writes in Corinthians, I'd gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. This is what Bible perfection is about, loving others and God more than loving self, rather than focusing on the deeds that we do. You see, these are the issues of perfection. Now, and we get confused in that. Those who are in heaven, the Ellen White talks about, will uh, Christ will lead them beside the river of life and explain things that they never knew. Zechariah actually talks about, they'll ask questions. What are these nail prints in your hands? I've never known. Well, what are those all about? And he will say, I received these at the house of, of my friends. My friends did this to me. What a powerful discussion that will be. Yes, and we got to move on. Got so many other things in the class. Okay. Where do you get that perfectionist maturity in the Bible? Oh, it's it's all over the Bible, actually. So it's all over the Bible. That's I mean that's what it means everywhere in the Bible. Where do you get that? I've never heard. I mean, you know, everybody says we're going to be perfect. People say, not everybody. We've had major discussions with fellow Adventists on this. When we, you know, you're going to be perfect. You have you can be perfect before Christ comes. Absolutely not. Perfect loyalty. Perfect loyalty. Well, I'll give you those texts after class today, okay? Let me read to you. This is out of uh, Great Controversy, page 493, just to show you some of the ideas about this, the the, the principle of life, how Christ defeated the principle of death. And I'm going to give you a couple Bible texts, too. This says, The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depend upon their perfect accord with this great principle of righteousness. And then out of Desire of Ages, page 19, it says, Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. It will be seen that the glory shining from the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light from Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life. Notice those words. Law of love is law of life. For earth and heaven, that love which seeks not her own has its source in the heart of God, and that the meek and lowly one is manifested the character of him who dwells in light that no man can approach. Uh, this is the principle of life. And now we read in Hebrews 2.14 that Christ took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. And then in Timothy 1.9 and 10 we read, This grace is given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. You notice that. And notice what he did before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through an appearing of the Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. Notice this destruction of death. How did Christ destroy death? By his resurrection. Most people say Christ died the second death. No. He destroyed the second death. Is there a difference between dying the second death and destroying it? You'll never find a Bible text that says Christ died the second death. You'll find a lot of human theologians say it. And you know why they say it? Because they believe in penal substitution that Christ had to die to pay the penalty that God needed to enforce over sin, which is eternal death. That's the penalty for sin. Wages of sin is death. And the, and the righteous and just penalty has is, is got to be invoked. And so in order for us to be saved, well, somebody has to pay that penalty for us. And so Christ had to die the second death because if he didn't, well, our penalty's not paid. That's where it comes from. 
No, he didn't have to pay a penalty. He had to actually destroy death. Destroy it. By death. And thus, in the end, in, the, in, in Revelation, it says that, the, that Hades, what's another word for Hades? Hell. Hell. Death. The grave. The grave. Sheol, the grave. Okay? It's the grave. It's death. And it actually says death and Hades, death and the grave, were thrown where? Into the lake of fire. And what's the lake of fire? Glory of God. And the glory of God is His love. Okay? Love destroys death and the grave. Do you understand? It is powerful stuff. And so Christ came, the source of all love, to put love back in humanity, thus destroying death. Now what is it that brings death? The breaking of the circle of love. The severing of the circle of love. Remember in the... Some, I see some quizzical looks, so let's just really quick go over this again. I know this is a, rep- a repetition for some of you, so bear with me, okay? But the law of love is the law of life. Paul, as was said earlier in Romans, says that uh, all nature reveals the character of God. His divine nature is revealed in what he has made, so men are without excuse in Romans 1.20. God is love, so in nature we see this law, this principle of life. Then the oceans give their waters to the clouds, raining over the lands, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, flowing back to the ocean, a never-ending circle that brings life. If a body of water separates and no longer flows, it stagnates and everything and it dies. With every breath you breathe, you freely give away carbon dioxide to the plants, and the plants give back oxygen to you, a perpetual circle of life. If you decide to, I don't want to be part of the circle given, I'm going to keep my carbon dioxide because my body made it, it's mine, I have a right to it, you can't have it. The only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. The circle of giving is the circle of life. We see it. Everything God makes, electrons flow from one uh, atom to another. We call it a current of electricity. But it can only flow if there is a complete circle. We call it an electrical circuit. If we break the circuit, the electrons can flow, not just for the lights, but for the circuits of the brain. In order for life to occur, there must be a circle of life, the circle of love, the free flow and giving. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, God tried to reveal this when he had the sinners confess their sins on the head of the lamb, thus showing the sin happens in the mind, and then the sinner cuts the circulation. The blood is, life is in the blood and it circles. This is the law of life. And when we sever it, that's why death comes. Death is happening because the circle of love, which flows from God through Christ out to creation and back to God again, has been severed by lies believed break the circle of love and trust. So Christ came to reunite this planet back into harmony with the circle of love. And thus in Christ we see the law of love perfectly revealed, but perfectly lived out by a human being, God-man, Jesus Christ. And he used his human mind, not his divine mind. How do we know he used his human mind and not his divine mind? What evidence do we have from Scripture to know? It was his human mind that did these things, not his divine mind. Everything I did, I've heard from the Father, so he followed the Father's instructions. Day by day. Yeah. And he struggled with his own selfish... James chapter 1, no one, should say when, no one should say that God tempts, because God cannot be tempted by evil. God can't be tempted. Was Jesus tempted? Yes. So was that his divine mind, or was that his human mind? It had to be his human mind because his divine mind could not be tempted. It was his human mind that was tempted. And thus, when you see him overcoming step by step through his life, he is doing this in his human mind. Perfectly walking out the law of love. 
And he said repeatedly, you know, the devil comes, but he has nothing in me. There is no evil in Christ, but Christ was tempted to act like we act. Hebrews chapter 4.15, Christ was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And James 1 says we are tempted when we're drugged away and enticed by our own desires. In Gethsemane, you see him tempted by powerful passions and emotions to act to save himself. Wasn't he? Is that the evidence that Scripture reveals to us? Was Christ tempted by emotions to avoid the cross? And if he would have gone with those emotions, would he have saved us or saved himself? And that's the essence of sin. Self-preservation. Save self. And so he was tempted in every way like us, even by our own feelings. But every time the temptation came, what did he choose to do in his heart and mind? No one can take my life. I will give it freely. He maintained the free circle of love. And this is why he had to die. If at any point along the way, Christ would have exercised his power to stop death's approach, who would he have saved? Yes. Selfishness would have won. The reason he had to die is because he would never use his power to save self. He gave himself freely. And thus, in Christ, human being perfectly overcame, defeated, destroyed Satan's methods of self-centeredness in a human mind and heart. And this is where it gets really awesome. When the Father abandoned him, when he became sin, who knew no sin? Think in your own life experience. Have any of you ever been in a position where you were... In a, in a crisis, in a situation where you had incredible feelings of fear, anxiety, and, and need to preserve self, and you acted in selfish ways to, to protect your reputation, to protect your goods, to protect whatever, and you had this incredible, and you really look back on that and go, man, I was really selfish. Remember those, how intense those feelings were? Do you realize as intense as those were, you were not abandoned, the Holy Spirit and God's angels were still there working on you to try to win you? Christ was abandoned by God. He had all the intensity of those feelings and defeated it with his human self, without the angelic host helping him, without the spirit as he was abandoned and given up by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he still won the battle. It's incredible. He felt forsaken. He wasn't forsaken by God. He wasn't forsaken, but he was left unaided to do this in his own strength, to live it out perfectly as a human being. Thus he redeemed, he restored. He won the battle that none of us could win. And he becomes the source now of life for all. Well, we've got to move on. There's so many other things. In Tuesday's lesson, in the first paragraph, it talks about the Son of God associating with certain people, various kinds of human interactions and so forth. And it says, the amazing thing about Christ was uh, not so much that... As a human, he had interactions with other people. No, what was amazing is that he chose to interact with certain types of people. What kinds of people did he choose to interact with? Sinners. Yes, and they said this is amazing. This is amazing he chose to interact with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the, and the scum of society. You know why they think it's amazing? Because they have the wrong paradigm. You see, they have the wrong paradigm of God. They think that God is pleased with people who do the right things and keep the right rules like the Pharisees who were the good rule keepers. And they think that God is offended by people who struggle with sin and break the rules and do bad things. No. If we change the paradigm and we look at this as God is interested in people who are willing to be healed, people who know they're sick and want transformation, people who recognize that they are defective and want to be cured, then is it amazing who he hung around with? 
Wasn't he hanging around with the people who were open to be healed? Yes. See, we have the wrong paradigm. And when we look at that, it's not amazing at all. I perfectly expect Christ to hang around with those very people because those people were willing to listen. Their hearts were open. They wanted transformation. While the rule keepers, they didn't need anything from him, did they? They weren't open for healing and transformation. In fact, they wanted to teach him how he could do things better, didn't they? You shouldn't be healing people on Sabbath. Don't you know that? And thus, how could he hang around with them? They didn't want him, did they? And thus we learn a powerful lesson. The Holy Spirit hangs around in the hearts and minds of those who are open to him and is not hanging around with those who close their hearts. I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. And he was me. Lisa. I think some people use that example, uh, hanging around with um, sinners of that nature and uh, saying, well, it's okay to go out with people who have blue standards and morals and such, and such because that's what Jesus did. And we aren't strong like Jesus was. We can't protect ourselves like Jesus did. So we're more vulnerable to follow in their steps instead of being like Jesus and drawing them to him. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's wisdom in that, but it's, it's, it's one of those areas where it's not completely black or white in either direction, isn't it? Yeah. We, shouldn't, we shouldn't avoid people, but we also shouldn't use it as an excuse when our hearts really want to just be able to say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm here being righteous and I'm being like Christ so I can actually do all these self-indulgent things and, and not feel guilty about it. And some people, I think, you know, do those things. But Paul does say in Corinthians that bad company corrupts good character. character. And so generally what I find, especially in adolescent years and college years, if you have somebody who's struggling with a, with a, maybe an alcohol, drug problem, uh, something along those, a pornographic issue, whatever, they're struggling in that, if that one person is put in a group of six or seven really good, wholesome, Christ-like centered people, their positive valence can, can be a good influence pulling them in the right direction. But if you have one really good Christ-like person who spends most of their time with ten or six or eight other people who are always doing this other stuff, that peer influence can over time corrupt their good character if they aren't really, really, really solidly founded. And so, so it's a, it's, it's a vulnerability that you point out correctly. Yes? Quick question. It says that well, and I kind of, Jesus knew the hearts of the people when he was here, and he could tell what was going on inside of them, but how can you do that if he's full of them? Because humans do not have the ability. Um, yes, but uh, the Bible talks about God enlightening um, people throughout all the Bible. Uh, prophets, God's prophets. Remember um, when... I can't remember which of the enemies of Israel were kind of attacking them all the time, but I think it was the prophet Elisha. Was it Elisha? It was Elisha, yes. And every time they would, they would attack, the, the Israelites were ready. The false prophets said, well, they have a spy in our camp because they have the prophet Elisha who God reveals everything we're talking about to. Remember? Yeah. And so God enlightens the minds, and so he certainly enlightened Christ's mind with things, but it was no different than he enlightened minds of other human prophets. Okay? He wasn't using his divine mind to do that. Okay. Uh, boy, there's so many things I want to get to, and they're really important. I want to get to them. Okay, Friday's lesson... There's three more points I want to make. We probably only get to one. Friday's lesson, in the paragraph there at the top, it says, The Pharisees thought themselves too wise to need instruction, too righteous to need salvation, too highly honored to need the honor that comes from Christ. The Savior turned away from them to find others who would receive the message of heaven. In the untutored fishermen, in the publican, at the marketplace, in this woman of Samaria, in the common people who heard him gladly, he found his new bottles for the new wine. 
the, the instrumentalities to be used in the gospel work are, these, are those souls who gladly receive the light which God sends them. These are his agencies for imparting the knowledge of truth to the world. Do you think today Christ might bypass the leadership of the church, the professional trained clergy? To you, to the laity, to us, to those who are receptive. Do you think the same principle applies that he will pour his new wine into any of us who are receptive to receive the truth and take it forward? Do you think there's a place for us to stop waiting for the clergy to lead us and for us to start receiving from Christ and going out and taking the truth to the world to change the world? And I think there's a real sluggishness in the church where we wait for the clergy to tell us it's okay to move forward in truth. What would have happened in Christ's day if the people would have waited for the, for the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the leaders of the church of his day to, to endorse Christ and, and to approve of the message before they took it forward? Never have happened. Yes. Do you think that people have this kind of idea in our church? Well, if the, if the pastor doesn't agree with it, well then, we probably don't need to agree with it either. Is that a safe position to take? No. No. And I'm telling you, I think that we have an opportunity. There is light. The Son of Righteousness, Malachi, the Son of Righteousness is rising with healing in His rays. The Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, is rising. Truth is being, is being poured out. The, the latter rain is starting to happen. Those of us who are receptive to it will receive it and take it forward. And, and you know, it's not determined by educational background or organizational endorsement. Organizational endorsement doesn't determine who receives the light of truth. It's the heart of each person, isn't that right? Yeah, so I challenge each of us here, man, receive the light of truth and take it forward. Okay, any questions about that? Because that's kind of, you know, radical. Um, in Thursday's lesson, last paragraph, it says, Our feelings toward those who reject us should not be anger or resentment. They should be pity of concern and of care. When people refuse to listen, they are not rejecting us personally, they are rejecting Jesus. And it talks about how do you respond to those who reject you and so forth. My question is, uh, first off, do you all agree with that? That our attitude should be one of compassion, pity, love for those who reject the truth? Yes. Then why do some say that God gets angry at those who reject him? And then when people reject the truth, ultimately in the end, God will become angry and wrathful and make them pay. Are we actually saying that we should have a higher maturity level than God himself? That we shouldn't get angry and angry and upset when people reject the truth, but it's okay that God gets angry, upset when people upset the truth, reject the truth. In Friday's lesson, I recommended that we read a chapter out of Desire of Ages, and 610 to 620 or thereabouts. The bottom paragraph, 620, discusses Christ's attitude toward those he was speaking with, in which, although he would have had righteous anger against the hypocrisy, he never treated them with unkindness. And that our... Now, now think about anger towards hypocrisy means... Against sin. It, well, not towards them, was it? Not against the person. Yeah. And so think about a child dying of leukemia, and you see all the symptoms, you see the vomiting, you see the, 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 the pain and suffering. You could be angry at the disease, but you love the child. That's what he's angry at the hypocrisy, the disease that's warping their mind. Absolutely. Go ahead. May I read this paragraph? Go ahead. Christ's indignation was directed against hypocrisy, the gross sin by which men were destroying their own souls, 
deceiving the people and dishonoring God. In the specious, deceptive reasoning of the priests and rulers, he discerned the working of the satanic agencies. Keen and searching had been his denunciation of sin, but he spoke no words of retaliation. He had a holy wrath against the prince of darkness, but he manifested no irritated temper. So the Christian, who lives in harmony with God, possessing the sweet attributes of love and mercy, will feel a righteous indignation against sin, but he will not be aroused by passion to revile those who revile him. Even in meeting those who are moved by a power from beneath to maintain falsehood, in Christ he will still preserve calmness and self-possession. I love it. And did you notice that it's just he was angry at the sickness of the mind that was warping them and causing the hypocrisy, but he, he wasn't angry at them, the people. He loved them still. I think that's beautiful. Just like you'd be angry at a, at a disease destroying your child. Well, let's close with prayer. Thank you for sharing that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will come and bring the truth to our hearts and minds, that we can come to know you and receive from you your love, your character, your regenerating presence, that we can have discernment to love people while we hate the sickness that is destroying them and others, and that we can go forward as your agents, pushing back satanic agencies on this planet and freeing hearts and minds to come to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.